As I told you at the end of the service last week, starting today, we were going back to how we were operating with our uh, early elementary school kids' worship time uh, today. So if you have a first through third grader who uh, you want to go to the kids' worship time, uh, this is it. And I can already see them going. So they didn't need me to even tell them. Church family, if you'll take your copy of God's word and turn to Genesis chapter 12, in a moment we'll stand and read verses 10 uh, through 20, uh, which will be our text this morning. Thank you to those of you that are joining us online, whether you're watching this live with us, if you found it, or if you are watching this recorded, uh, church family that are here, I need to say something to them uh, for just a moment. For the last two weeks, and this may benefit you if you're going to be traveling or out in the next few weeks, for the last two weeks we've had trouble with our uh, live stream. It is not on our end. Uh, Our media team is doing everything they can to have this on as many platforms as possible as we've been doing uh, since March. Uh, But the company that we contract with that we stream to that pushes this out to other places uh, is having some coding issues, particularly as it relates to Facebook, which is one of our uh, biggest places where people watch us. Uh, And so the best place right now for you to stream this, if you want to stream it live or recorded, is it's played 24 hours a day on a loop, uh, is at nrbc.online.church. Uh, the sermon notes are there. There's links that you can click to give and uh, to fill out prayer requests and respond to the message. That's always going to be the best place to watch it um, and is our most, um, uh, the one that the stream stays to the easiest. We're working on the others as diligently as possible. Uh, we also, our media team has been working uh, to create podcast channels for both my Sunday morning sermons and my Wednesday night uh, equip teaching, which right now is walking through uh, Bible intake. How do we read, study, and hear the Bible together? And so you can see uh, on the screen with me all of the places now that you can go to access these podcasts. Uh, so if you are a podcast person, if you're not a podcast person, you hardly even know what this is. But for podcast people, like this is a big deal, all right? Because you're either a podcast person or you're not, all right? That's what I have found. You either love podcasts and consume them like some of us consume Krispy Kreme donuts or this is all just foreign foreign to you, okay? Um, But if that is you and you like to download podcasts for your commute into work or for while you work out or for other times, uh, our sermons and Wednesday night uh, material are now all going to be podcast on all of these different places. And so we're just grateful for the opportunity in the midst of pandemic uh, to uh, continue to push uh, the, the gospel and the proclaimed word of Christ out to as many places as possible. I'll invite you now, those of you that are in the room with us, to stand as we honor the reading of God's word here in Genesis 12 as we look at verse 10 down through the end of the chapter this morning. This is the word of the Lord, which we have sung together in prayer to God that he would speak, O Lord. Now, there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister that it may go well with me because of you and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. 
And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask you this morning that you would speak to us through your word. From this ancient account, the patriarch Abram, after being called by God and promised by him in his first test of faith. Would we recognize, God, our own trials in which we so often want to run to Egypt? We most often want to shortcut trial for security. Would you convict our hearts today, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Today, we consider our the second account in the life of Abram as he has answered the call of God and believed by faith the promise of God that God would take him from a land where he was raised and to, for him to go to a land that God would show him. As we saw last week, God showed him that land and Abram worshiped God and believed that God would keep his word, that God made seven promises to Abram and that God would keep them. And where we left off was Abram in what is known as the Negev, the area south of Jerusalem in Israel, and he had at least for some time settled there. And what we're going to see today that we have read this morning from these verses uh, is something new to us in our series in Genesis, and that is direct sin by the primary actor in the text. You see, it's been since Genesis 3, since Adam and Eve fell in the garden, that we've seen our primary actor sinning. Not that there has not been sin between chapters 3 and 12, but most often that sin has been done by a supporting person in the story. It's been done by someone who is peripheral, and we've seen the response of those whom God is primarily working with. And through, like the response of Adam when Cain killed Abel, like the response of Noah when uh, Ham sinned against him. But here we now see Abram, a high in the first part of this chapter, called by God, receiving that call and promise and going after God, demonstrating his faith, immediately reaching now a low Continuing a pattern that we have already established in Genesis where the the writer will give us a high point and immediately give us then a low. But I do want us to prepare our minds this morning before we approach the text because we're going to see Abram do something that I believe every person in this room would consider absolutely despicable. Abram is going to ask his wife to pretend to be his sister to put his wife in harm's way, to for the sake of his own safety, give his wife to another man. 
I cannot imagine that anyone in this room would read this and think this is anything other than a terrible act by Abram, and we should read it as such. But because it is so terrible, because we would see this as so despicable in our eyes and such an egregious sin before the Lord, we run a great risk of thinking, I would never do that. And can I tell you something, folks? The moment we approach a sin in Scripture and ascribe into our own minds the fact that we would never do that, we've already lost. (laughs) We've already failed because we failed to recognize the full truth. And the full truth is this, but for the grace of God, we would. But for the grace of God, we would do exactly what Abram does in this moment. If it were not for the grace and goodness of God in our lives directing us and his faithfulness to us, we would do far worse than give our wives over to Pharaoh for our own safety, security, and prosperity. So while you may look at this and say, man, that is not something that I would ever consider doing, listen, we are all susceptible to sin. We are all susceptible to great evil because of the fall and its impact in our lives. Every one of us, faced with what Abram was faced, would very likely make a similar choice. So let's not think of ourselves more highly than we ought this morning. While yes, Abram commits egregious sin here in this text, It is intended to shine a spotlight on all of us as we so often run the same risk of going down to Egypt in our own unfaithfulness. It begins with Abram demonstrates a lack of faith leading to sinful action. Verse 10 sets the scene for us. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there for famine was severe in the land. This creates a new pattern for us We have already seen two patterns begin in Genesis. This is now the third, and it is the pattern of the famine. Often in Genesis, we will see the patriarchs having to deal with famine, particularly famine and its relationship with security found in Egypt. So there was a famine in the promised land where Abram was settled, and uh, this is common in Israel, as Israel is uh, at times a very arid place, and particularly the area where, uh, where Abram had settled with his family south of Jerusalem. Uh, they were very dependent upon rains during a certain time of year, and if those rains did not come, uh, the ability to have food and to feed your livestock would go away quickly. So Abram makes a choice. And this is certainly a choice of Abram to go down to Egypt to sojourn there. And we're told this kind of in neutral terms, that there was a famine in the land, is how the the verse begins, and then the famine is described as severe in the ending of the verse, and Abraham's decision is sandwiched in between those two things. So we should see Abram making what could be taken as a logical decision. There's no food here, and there's pretty much always food in Egypt. Because of the nature of the Nile River in Egypt, there was uh, rarely famine there. Not that they were uh, immune to famine in Egypt, but very often when other parts of the Middle East would experience famine, Egypt would not. And so Abram, Abram makes what we could say would be a logical decision here. 
But I do believe it's important to compare the first verse of this account to the first verse of the previous account in Genesis 12. How did Genesis 12 begin? Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Do you notice the difference between verse one and verse 10? In verse one, God says to go. In verse one, God says to go to a land that I will show you. That God is the primary actor in verse one. That God is the one telling Abram what to do and Abram is following in faith and obedience. But in verse 10, God is silent. In verse 10, God has not given any instruction, at least recorded in the scriptures, for what Abram to do. Abram makes his own choice. And while it may seem like a logical choice, it is a choice that seems to be, in context of Genesis 12, in direct contradiction to what God has already spoken to Abram. God did not say, Abram, go to the land that I will show you unless there is a famine there. Abram, go to the land that I will show you until it gets really hard and then go to a easier place to live. No, God said, Abram, go to the land that I will show you. Now, that doesn't mean that Abram is yet in direct disobedience to God. Because God has given us wisdom and God has given us the ability to reason for ourselves and it seems reasonable, I believe, to everyone in this room as we approach this text rightly for us to think, wow, this famine was severe. Go to a place at least temporarily where the famine was not gripping the land. And so we could say, while Abram is not quite doing what God has specifically instructed him to do, I don't necessarily blame him for doing this. But this, again, is the beginning of a pattern. This is not the first, this is not the last time that famine will grip the land and Egypt will come calling. In Genesis 26, we see this same thing happen to Abram's son. We read this at the beginning of that account. Now, there was a famine in the land beside the former famine that was in the days of Abram. So that's speaking about the one we're talking about today. And Isaac, who is Abram's son, went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land which I will tell you. Sojourn in this land and I will be with you and will bless you. For you and to your offspring I will give all these lands and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. So the next time famine grips the land and one of the patriarchs is tempted to go to Egypt, God specifically intervenes. Now just a little hint. Isaac ends up doing exactly the same thing his father did just didn't need to go to Egypt to do it. So when we get to Genesis 26, we're going to see the repeat of the same sin over again. But here it is, famine in the land, but God intervenes. So in one case, in Abram's case, it seems like a logical decision, not necessarily in direct disobedience to God, but not fully doing what God has told him to do. Isaac, on the other hand, is told not to go and to not do that. And then if we were to go all the way to the end of Genesis, we see it happen a third time to Abram's grandson, Jacob, and his great-grandson, who is already in Egypt because his brother sold him into slavery there, Joseph, where they all end up in Egypt because another famine was in the land. So in one case, it seems neutral. In one case, God says, don't go. And in the third case, God says, to go. 
So we don't need to think of Egypt necessarily as this bad place, although those, of, those that, are re, that are receiving this for the first time, ancient Israel, who are leaving Egypt, would certainly have a certain context with which they are seeing the patriarch go down to where God has just delivered them from. Then we continue in verses 11 through 13. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you and that my life may be spared for your sake. So here's what we're told in these verses. Sarai is a beautiful woman. Now we know that she is middle-aged at this point. But nonetheless, her appearance is beautiful. And Abram is worried that they're going to get to this land where they will find food, but they will ultimately find persecution. And so he asks his wife to do the unthinkable. Say that you are my sister to save my own hide. Because if they believe you are my wife, they will kill me to take you from me. Now, in Genesis 20... Before Abram's son, Isaac, does this exact same thing, Abram does it again. This becomes a pattern in his life. And we get more details about why Abram does this in the account in Genesis 20. So to get into his mind, I want us to fast forward to that account just quickly. And this is Abram's response to one who is saying the same thing that Pharaoh is going to say to him in this account. Why in the world did you tell me this was your sister? And here's what Abram said. I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And when God called me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. So chapter 20 gives us some additional details. Number one is Abram thinks he's not being deceptive. Because his wife is either his half-sister, which is one way that we could read this text, because he does say he is the, she is the daughter of my father, but not my mother. But you could also read that to mean adopted daughter. So it's not necessarily that they are um, half-brother and sister, although they very well could be. And so Abram thinks, I'm not really being deceptive because this is kind of a half-truth. It's partially true. But we also see the habitual nature of this lie in that text because we're revealed in verse 13 of chapter 20 that everywhere they went, so we're only told two times they do this, but it seems as if this has become something that happened from the very beginning. He has instructed his wife to say, he is my brother. Abram is concerned for his own well-being and his own skin. So he's going to attempt to pull this off twice, and eventually he's going to pass this same ruse off to his son. See how sin so quickly entangles. So that's the lie. We're going to go to Egypt because there's food in Egypt. That seems like a logical choice, but when we're there, we're really going to have to live this lie, Sarai, because you're beautiful and the Egyptians are going to want you, and because they're going to want you, they're going to kill me and take you away from me. And we're going to further get into Abram's mind here in uh, just a moment. But could we consider verses 14 through 16 first? 
When Abram entered Egypt, so we see what actually happened. So they've made a plan, now they're going to execute that plan. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. So it was exactly as Abram thought, right? It was a self-fulfilling prophecy. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Now this seems to happen very quickly. We don't know how long Abram and his family were in Egypt. We don't know how quickly news spread there in ancient Egypt, but eventually Pharaoh finds out that there's this new beautiful exotic woman from a faraway land that's dwelling in his place, and lo and behold, she's not married. She's here with her brother, so I'm going to take her to be in my house. Now, just quickly about verse 15. Some scholars have, seek, have sought to soften what is actually being said here in the text. They've sought to say that there was no actual consummation of marriage, and we're not told that there was. But I believe to read this otherwise is to not actually do justice to what very likely took place here and the egregious nature of what has transpired. Verse 16, and for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep and oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys and camels. Here's what verse 16 tells us. Verse 16 tells us that Pharaoh was really pleased with his new wife. So pleased with his new wife that he enriched Abram far beyond what he had previously known. And Abram was already fairly wealthy. Abram was already traveling from Ur and Haran down into Israel with a caravan. He already had stuff. And now because of his ruse, he has benefited even more so because of it. And we may stop there, right? Could we stop right here at verse 16 and think, look, this has worked out rather well for Abram, hasn't it? Because if verse 10 is any indication, Abram was afraid that he was going to starve to death. And just seven verses later, Abram's now doing really, really well. I mean, look, he's got servants and he's got oxen and he's got donkeys and he's got camels. I mean, this guy is doing really well for himself. Because we could stop, or we could be tempted right here to stop and say that the lie was worth it, that the sin actually paid off. Because what Abram was seeking to achieve, right, security and food and, and, and material possessions that he was afraid to lose during the famine in Canaan. He now has an abundance in Egypt. But Proverbs 10, too, says, treasure gained by wickedness do not profit. Understand this. All of that goodness that we, should, that we read in verse 16, all of this worldly goodness and worldly wealth must have been bitter in Abram's mouth. I can imagine Abram sitting there looking at all of this that he had collected because of his lie and hopefully regretting it. Hopefully thinking, struggling to sleep at night over the fact that here he is having given away his wife for his own security. So I do want us to stop here for a moment. Now that we've seen Abram's actions and you noticed God's not acted yet. It's coming. <laughs> Abram's actions, he makes what would seem to be a rational decision because there's a famine in the land to go to Egypt. He creates this ruse, which apparently they've already been discussing on their journey over. And now they've enacted it. Their plan has taken place. 
Sarah is now with Pharaoh. Abram is wealthy. But what is going on in Abram's mind? How should we, having the full context of this account and this following directly after the previous account where Abram demonstrates great faith by leaving the land of the pagan land of his forefathers and going to the land that God would have him to go and worshiping God in two places along the way. How are we really to read this? What is Abram really thinking? Why would he do this? In the context of all of Genesis 12, here's what I think is happening. In Abram's mind, a dead Abram is no good to the plan of God. A dead Abram can't father a child. A dead Abram can't become a great nation. A dead Abram can't inherit a land. A dead Abram, whether by famine in Canaan or sword in Egypt, is unacceptable to Abram. (laughs) Because Abram thinks that for God to keep his promise to him, his life is necessary. So Abram attempts to help God That's what Abram attempts to do here. And by the way, we will see this over and over in the lives of the patriarchs. Let me help you a little bit, God. I don't see how you can keep your promise to me in a land in famine, so I'm going to go to Egypt. I don't see how you can keep your promise to me in Egypt if the Egyptians kill me so they can take my wife, so I'm going to lie. Abram desires here to just help God a little bit in keeping his promise. And so, as he attempts to help God, he now sits in Egypt, well-fed, well-cared for, rich and fat. But his wife, who is just as necessary for the promise of God to be fulfilled, is now living as another man's wife. Abram's attempt to help God has actually done the exact opposite because what was necessary for God to keep his promise to Abram was the eventual heir that would come by Abram and Sarai. And she now lives in another man's house. God didn't need Abram's help. All Abram needed to do was to live by faith. And here in this account, he has utterly failed. But here's what we see. As one commentator writes, this story now transitions from a history under control of Abram's plan to a history under control of the Lord's plan. So the Lord now intervenes, bringing judgment and grace following the same pattern that has previously been established in the, in the chapters preceding this in Genesis where we see sin, judgment, and grace. Now God steps in. God was silent in verse 10 when there was a famine in the land. God was silent when Abram was scheming with his wife. God was silent when he has turned his wife over to Pharaoh to save his own skin. But now God acts. He does not need Abram's help. And God will rescue the plan. Look at verse 17. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. Now stop for a moment. And you may think, isn't God cursing the wrong guy here? (laughs) Isn't the guy that ought to be getting the plagues, sitting fat and happy down in his little camp with all his donkeys and oxen and servants and everything else, isn't that the guy that ought to be 
plagued by God? Pharaoh is the one judged. Pharaoh is the one punished for his sin, even though he didn't know what he was doing was sin. And know this, there is a principle assumed by the biblical author that we must also assume, and that is this, it is always right when God judges sin. We might not think it is equitable to apply a a very popular 21st century word. We might not think it's fair, but it's right. It's always right when God judges sin. And we may, we may see God judge sin in one person's life more harshly than he judges in another, but that is to God to decide, and it is right when he does so. And he does so here. He judges Pharaoh for his sin, not Abram. And Pharaoh is only sinning in ignorance. His error is only the error of not knowing that this was actually another man's wife, but it was an error nonetheless. And we don't know how long these plagues sat on Pharaoh's house, but we know that they had the desire effect. So in verses 18 and 19, Pharaoh now becomes the judge in this scenario. He now stands in moral authority over Abram and says what? So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this that you have done to me? And why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Look, you can't read this without inflection, folks. Can you imagine how mad Pharaoh's got to be right now? Like, all of this, whatever these plagues are that have happened in his life, whatever's transpired, Pharaoh's upset about it. And he comes to Abram with with just incredulously saying, what in the world have you done? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say in verse 19, she is my sister, so that I took her from my wife? Now then, here is your wife, take her and Go. Why did Pharaoh act like this? I mean, put, imagine for a moment who this guy is. This is the Pharaoh of Egypt. This is during the middle period of the Egyptian empire. It was during a, a revival period of the Egyptian strength and Egyptian culture. And as, as Egypt has grown in their wealth and in their power, You would have to travel all the way to Abram's former land, to Mesopotamia, to find another emperor, another ruler that could rival the power and influence of Pharaoh. Pharaoh could have just killed Abram. Pharaoh could have just killed Sarai. Pharaoh could have taken everything they had for his own and wiped them completely off the map. But there are two things that are important for us to understand. And know this, Pharaoh is immoral. Pharaoh is a pagan worshiper of false gods. And yet he recognizes two things. Number one, he recognizes the moral law of God. He does not know the one true God, but he recognizes that the moral law of God has been broken. He recognizes that adultery has been committed. He recognizes that he has taken another man's wife. Now, it took plagues to make him recognize this, but he has recognized it nonetheless. And so while Pharaoh does not serve the one true God, he knows the law of the one true God that had been implanted in man's heart, that adultery is sinful. But he also recognizes something else, that there is great power behind the one true God Pharaoh has no reason to fear Abram. He has every reason to fear God. 
And the God that stands behind Abram is nothing to be trifled with. If he did not believe so, he would have just killed him. But he recognizes that the God who sent these plagues, the God who is now dealing with him justly because of his sin, is a God that he does not stand against. Now, we think about this in the context of those who are first receiving it. Because this is not the last time that we will see plagues visited upon the house of Pharaoh. And in Exodus 11, verse 1, when Moses is preparing to lead the people of Israel out of bondage in Egypt and God is sending plagues there, God speaks to Moses and says, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterwards, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. We see the same response. The same response that happened uh, in Abram's life is the same response that would happen in the original receiver's lives of this text, that God intervenes, that God acts on behalf of his people, and that the story that God is telling needs no assistance because God intervened. And then we see in verse 20, Pharaoh gave, orders to concern, Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Really, the story ends in the first verse of the next chapter. So Abram went up from Egypt, and he and his wife and all that they had, and Lot with him into the Negev. So this story, just as quickly as it began, began ends in the same place, mind you, that it began in the Negev of Israel, this journey, we don't know how long it took, how long they stayed there, but this little sidebar where Abram tries to help God becomes entirely unnecessary in the plan of God. And here we see in these verses that conclude this section, grace. The great sin of Abram, the judgment of God brought upon Pharaoh's house, and now grace offered to Abram and Sarah, who had attempted to shortcut God. But they are now back together. They are now back in their lands. They are now more wealthy when they had started their trek to Egypt. Not because of their plan, though, but because God chose to show them grace, even in the midst of their unfaithfulness. While this is the first, it will not be the last time that Abram and Sarah attempt to shortcut the plan of God. Very likely, there's a person traveling back from Egypt with them who will become an, an, an instrument in another attempt for them to do so later. There's an Egyptian servant girl traveling back with Sarah that they will use to try to help God out again because one act of faithlessness very often opens the door to others. And we will see Time and again over the coming weeks, Abram responding in faith to God and then Abram acting in his own faithlessness. So what? We must trust in the Lord's faithfulness during difficult times as he uses those trials for our good. What stands out in this text is the fact that, the, that Abram trusted God all the way from Ur to Haran. Abram trusted God all the way from Haran down into Israel. 
Abram trusted God when he said, I will show you the land. He trusted God when he said, I will bless you. He trusted God when God said, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. He trusted God when he said, I will give you a seed whose descendants will inherit this land. He trusted God in those moments. But when his stomach began to rumble, that trust faded away. When the pressure of men began, became perceived, at least in Abram's mind, to be too much there in Egypt for the sake of his wife, that trust began to fade away. So for us, as we read this text, we must recognize that God is always faithful. That God is faithful. And we must trust in that faithfulness because the trials that God brings into our lives are used by him for our good. So it is not for us to attempt to short-circuit the will of God and the plan of God for our lives and to look for the easiest path to get there. Abram thought he had the easy path, and it took direct intervention by God to get him back on the right one. And we must understand that the Lord's faithfulness to us during those times of trials is often the closest encounter that we will have with this faithful God because we cling to him when all else seems lost. The New Testament apostle James writes about our trials in this way. He writes to Christian believers and says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Then he, he says in verse 12 of chapter one, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Hear me clearly. Anyone promising you that coming to Christ would mean less trials in your life is selling you something other than biblical Christianity. And I realize that there are very popular preachers on television and on YouTube and on Facebook and in the bookstores who want to promise you ways to shortcut trial. That if you'll just have enough faith, you won't even have to deal with those trials anymore. But listen to me, that is a bill of goods that is not found in the scriptures. The response demanded of faith in the Christian life is one who says this trial is one that God can overcome. This trial is one that God can see me through. This trial is one that God will use to produce spiritual fruit in my life, bringing me closer to him and making me more into the image of his son. This trial endured with steadfastness through faith is one that which when I, after I am tested, will show that I stand to receive the crown of life promised by God. God doesn't need our attempt to circumvent. God doesn't need our attempt to flee to Egypt or to tell a little white lie and, and to compromise so that we can inherit this promise that he's given to us. No, God just needs us to be faithful. God's desire for us is just that we would live in faith, trusting that he is faithful. So do you trust in Jesus today? Do you believe that he is the one that can see you through anything 
or when things begin to get difficult? Do you begin to fall back in on yourself and do exactly what Abram did? Let me, let me just make the easier choice here. Let, let me make the most convenient choice here. Let me make the most rational choice here. Let me make the choice that even though it is obviously sinful, let me make the choice that's going to save my own hide. Far too often, that's the Christian response too. Far too often, our response is to do exactly what Abram did when faced with great trial. There's no compromise that we can make in this life that is going to make our trials better. It's only going to make it worse, just like it did in Abram's life. The compromises in Abram's life that Abram made made it worse until God himself intervened. Listen, church. God is always faithful. God would have fed Abram during the famine. God would have protected Abram in Egypt. There was no need for either of those decisions because God is faithful. The question is, are we faithful in our trust towards him? If you've never trusted in Jesus, I want you to understand something today. That is the only way for you to be right with God. That is the only way for you to come through the trials that we face in this life because ultimately the trials of this life lead to eternal judgment separated from God if we seek to face them on our own. Outside of God, outside of a relationship with Jesus, we will never overcome. But in him we find eternal life and promise that God will be with us always using those trials in our lives to make us more into the image of Christ. So would you put your faith in Jesus today? Would you trust in him for the remission of your sin, believing that he died in your place so that you might live a victorious life, not a trial-free life, but a victorious life over those trials because he is working in you. Let's pray together. God, now we ask that you would help us because the trials that seem so prevalent, both personally and corporately for us, we so often want a worldly answer to, like run to Egypt. We so often want a creative solution to, like let's tell them that my, my wife is my sister, but leads us to sin, leads us away from how we should be responding in faith. Oh, and if, God, we all face this. And we need your help because if it's not for your grace, we all find ourselves exactly where Abram did. So you help us to overcome. Would you, I pray for the Christian in this room today that, that needs to return to that faith, that needs to say, God, I trust you. I don't, I don't see tomorrow. I don't see how this famine gets overcome. I don't, I, don't, I don't see how this persecution fades away. But God, I trust you. For the non-believer sitting in here watching with us online, God, would they come to faith in Jesus? Not so that they'll live a trial-free life, but so they'll have eternal life, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.